Hello and welcome to Mothers Matter, the podcast which takes a good look at why mothers matter so much to their children, why mothers matter in society and what matters to mothers themselves. Well, as we enter another election season in the UK, this is an ideal time to consider what are family-friendly policies. It may be that the people lobbying you are happy to talk about alternative topics, and a family-friendly policy is an ideal one to start with, because as far as I know, none of the parties really puts families first. They prioritise the ability of mothers to work as much as possible, but almost no one prioritises the ability of uh, mothers or fathers to spend as much time with their family as possible. So uh, in this particular podcast, I am talking to Marie Peacock again. She was, uh, I interviewed her for our second podcast on policies. This one, we're focusing really tightly on what is family friendly. Marie has a really good background in family care and social policy and how policies that politicians draw up have an impact on our ability to care for our families the way we would like to. So I hope you enjoy it. Well, Marie, thank you for speaking to me again today uh, about policies. We're reviewing policies again, and we really want to focus today on, well, (laughs) family-friendly policies, but not as they are currently uh, understood to be, to look at what genuinely family-friendly policies may be. Uh, What would you say is uh, defined as family-friendly at the moment? When someone wants to draw up a family-friendly policy, what do they hope to achieve with it? Thank you, Claire, for inviting me to talk about policies today. Um, It's a really interesting question. Um, I think we initially spoke about family-friendly and also how we might strengthen family life. Strengthen family life, that's that's what we said in our emails. And it got me thinking that um, the way this is interpreted is actually rather important um, because people have different ideas about what strengthening family life might mean. Family-friendly policies seem to me uh, to be about how we can facilitate a mother's journey back into the workplace and um, have a what would be termed as a better work-life balance um, for, for mothers and fathers. However, um, reading those various policy documents that quite often seems to be a lack of interest in the childhood development aspect um, or even you know, very little curiosity about what mothers actually want um, for those years of raising children or what fathers would prefer to to happen as well. It all seems to be set by employment targets at the end of the day. I think the Lisbon Convention um, and UN targets and sustainability development goals and so forth for the number of people that return to work and how much money they earn over a lifetime, um, is that particularly a, particularly looking at gender differences. Yeah. Is that a, uh, one of the SDGs, the Sustainability Development Goal, yeah, is so, women in work? I think it's, mm-hmm. it's basically, um, yes, looking at 
measurements of um, you know the, the the way we lead our lives, and uh, we all know that the focus is very often on GDP. So I think it's all tied into GDP, gross domestic product, what we can do to achieve growth, what we can do to uh, enable people to live good lives with decent income, um, to escape pensioner poverty. Um, so it, it's all about, on the face of it, very good things to enable us to live you know our lives well, but <clears throat> Hidden between those lines, I think we have to be very careful about interpretation um, and what it actually means on a day-to-day basis for women and men looking after young children. And if family-friendly or strengthening family life means we get to spend less time with our children, and in fact maybe get to spend less time with other members of our family too, which could be struggling teenagers or it could be elderly people who are struggling with loneliness and so forth, then we have to ask some questions about, you know, whether those sustainability development goals um, or whatever they're called, um, you know, whether, whether we can do it a bit differently or whether we ought to be challenging some of these targets. So... You and I are both linguists, and we've always been interested in, um, you know, the use of words. Um, and I think we need to have a counter debate about what family friendly actually means. You know, are we looking at children's development? Are we looking at um, enabling people to escape poverty? Are we looking at housing? Are we looking at looking at gender equality? Um, are we actually counting people's caregiving contributions? Um, because I don't think they are. I think most people would agree. I know the Women's Budget Group, for example, I was at a meeting the other day with the Women's Budget Group and we looked at invisible care work. Uh, we looked at how that might be better counted um, alongside your traditional methods of counting um, growth and GDP. Um, so, so certainly they, they do look at it. We can get figures from the Office of National Statistics about the value of, of care. But as long as it doesn't get properly factored in, then obviously they're always moving people away from care roles and into more productive um, work to which you can attach a monetary value. So mm. we're sort of we're sort of really struggling, aren't we, to um, find a rational rationale actually for for any time that's spent at home. Mm. Even though even though we know that you know if we have time for each other, then it's better for our mental health. It's better for children's mental health. Um, yeah, do we really want to live crazy lives rushing around? I, I don't think we do. Is the uh, women's budget group aimed at financing women to, well, making sure that women are paid for the work they're doing caring so they can care? Or is it aimed at getting mothers back into some sort of paid work because I, mean. yeah. I, I haven't been involved um, or party to the debates for that long really just for the last year and I think things have changed a little bit um, I'm quite heartened actually by the amount of time that's spent talking about invisible care work and um, I think that's a really positive thing um, I think the disagreements would be around um, how do we actually value and reward and recognize invisible care you know is it through the taxation system or is it through the welfare system um, mm. and, and I'm quite interested in, again, the language used. So we need to get rid of some of this negative language. You know, is care simply a burden? Mm. Are we trying to shift that burden around? Or um, 
I, I think a lot of people positively want to care and would not want to see it as a burden. If we value it properly, mm-hmm. then, um, you know, why are we always trying to get women doing less of it and men doing more of it? I mean, I, <laughs> I, I can see I, it's the cart before the horse syndrome. I tend to think that if we value it better and find a way of rewarding people who do it, then more men would probably end up doing it um, and there'd be more choice all around. But let's start by agreeing on a mechanism for rewarding it. Mm. And I think that's what we're here for today, Claire. I think it's about talking about the policies. So um, the policy mechanisms are through uh, direct payments to the the caregiver. And and I think I would back that. And I should hope that most most people would. Mm. We, We need an element of direct payments to the person who's investing energy and um, time into caring for another another human being. If we do it just through taxation, um, then that's putting extra money in the hands of the person who's out at work earning money. So that, that doesn't work. However, mm-hmm. we also need to fix the taxation system because it's actually quite discriminatory at the moment and, and tends to expect people with children to pay more tax than people without children on the same income. So, you know, that's not right either either. I think um, you probably want to take these things yes, uh, one, gonna, one by one. We're going to come back to taxation. Yeah. What I'd, mm. um, I think from what you've said there, one of, what we want to look at today is specific policies, uh, what is in place, what impact that's had and what mm. would be a, a better policy. And uh, you've started off talking there about care. And I know one thing that uh, you've mentioned yeah, uh, and just now as well is valuing care work properly and paying it well. So what's the situation at the moment? with nurses, home carers, nursery school workers and so on and and what impact is that Mm. having and how could it be different? Okay well this is a really interesting question and and I think one of the problems is that it's just quite a divided market you know so you're a carer if you're caring for somebody with disability um, or possibly looking after somebody with, um, with dementia but you're not considered to be a carer if you're looking after children even though children are vulnerable and unable to look after themselves so um, so we have different groups and different charities and different lobby groups standing up for these different categories of carers and that doesn't really help in any way um, so there's a certain amount of possessiveness I think over who is actually technically a carer um, in my book if you're spending time um looking after somebody of any age um, with needs who are not able to be independent, who are relying on your on you for their safety, well-being and development, then you're a carer. But that's not the way it's seen at the moment. So, um, so I think that needs fixing. I think people need to work together a lot better. And I think the other thing um, is the division, of course, between unpaid care and, and paid care. And again, I think there's scope for people to work together more closely. So you're not paid um, if you're engaged in invisible care work and you're not um, really looked after very well in the taxation, household taxation system, and you're not looked after terribly well in the welfare system at the moment if you're an invisible care uh, provider. But equally, you're not very well catered for if you're in paid care work. Um, So if you're, for example, and these are very different kinds of jobs and roles, but um, for the purpose of this discussion, let's talk about them all. Um, You can be a carer for an elderly person in a home or indeed a home carer, such as a spouse looking after um, somebody who is poorly. Or you can be um, 
a nursery practitioner or teacher, um, all sorts of caring jobs that are incredibly poorly paid with very, very few spokespeople standing up for them. They have no, they very often have no union uh, representation or anything like that. Um, and in my book, unless we fix this, uh, we're not going to fix the bigger problem of um, the so-called um, gender pay gap, mm. which is partly based on lifetime earnings and so forth. So measurements of lifetime earnings. So if you take a lot of time out of work, then obviously your likelihood of having earned as much as the person next door to you will be, you know, uh, compromised, if you, if you like. Um, but nobody really talks about low pay versus no much better paid work and un unless unless we find a way of rewarding care providers in the paid market better you know we're never going to close this gender pay gap mm. so you know I, th I think we've heard it quite a lot on the radio recently you know I think it's now well accepted that work is not a route out of poverty and work alone paid work alone isn't going to lead to this you know so-called um, gender equality um target and that's basically because so many women in particular are very poorly rewarded or not rewarded at all for their care work. Now I think the focus is on getting men into those roles as a way of solving this problem but to me that's shifting it around a little bit you know say um, why can't we talk first of all about how to value and reward care properly either by having uh, income top-ups, um, so improved welfare support for people in these roles, um, or we will have to just come clean and say we need higher taxation rates so that the system can afford to pay carers better. Um, at the moment, that's not on the agenda. No political party wants to talk about a tax rise, but we will need a tax rise if we are to fund the social care system and the NHS and care providers, particularly with an ageing population, mm. you know, better than we're currently doing. So, mm. so we need either a redistribution of how tax is spent mm -hmm. or um, we need a tax rise. Um, well, you might, uh, and, and you know that's the reality of it. Particularly, you know, we have a social care crisis. So, well, as you're talking about taxation, there, um, if we can move on to the taxation side, because the one person or party talk about taxation rises is Labour, looking at a rise for anyone on over eighty thousand. But that is uh, brings us on to the single income family where quite often to have to be able to afford a parent at home, the other parent has to work longer hours, say, and mm. will maybe earn more. But if you split that income, they would actually be eligible for, <laughs> for benefits mm. under a different category. So how if you brought in tax rises, how would you support the single income family? Um, I think one of the most... Um, controversial taxes has been in recent years has has, has been this cut to child benefit basically mm -hmm. I mean that's um, called a higher income tax charge and that that was obviously introduced um, I think by the coalition government mm -hmm. um, and hasn't been you know hasn't been challenged by any political party really uh, which is a real shame because anybody on over fifty thousand pounds loses child benefit um whereas you can be a um, dual earner couple on up to a hundred thousand pounds and you still get it so it's a it's mm. a it's a very regressive sort of tax um it taxation 
is independent. It doesn't look at household circumstances. And yet we want to talk about the shared responsibility we have as parents for our children. And yet, strangely, you know, taxation looks at at you independently, uh, which is which is quite bizarre, really. I mean, really, if it's a shared project and we raise children together as a household, I think there should at least be an option to opt into household taxation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the transferable tax allowance we have at the moment is only very partial, so it's not mm-hmm. worth very much money at all. So we could be looking, for example, at fully transferable tax allowances, mm-hmm. or we could be even more radical and have income splitting um, for households with children under a certain age. Um, that would be a little bit more expensive, but seems to make sense in a way, because transferable tax allowances, you know, that's not going to make a whole lot of difference. Just to explain yeah. then, transferable tax allowance, you'd take your 12500 that you can earn tax-free yes. and give it to the earning partner would have that so they would quite often because higher income tax kicks in quite uh, you know at 40,000 or whatever mm-hmm. at 42 that would allow that person to earn another 12 and a half thousand pounds without paying 40% or even 20% mm-hmm. tax on it which would actually for a lot of second income people who are working school hours would actually remove the need for that because it'd be almost the same as what you earn Mm. part-time so you could afford to spend time caring for your children uh, full-time but with the income splitting can you just explain how that works taxation income splitting would mean that it would lower probably the amount of tax that a higher earner was earning because the income that you're earning would be you know split and the amount of money that you were paying tax on would fall into a lower tax band mm-hmm. um, that's that's the first thing so you so split it you take one person's income and say it's the equivalent of two people's income so if they're on 60,000 you'd say they were both on 30,000 that's which would take them out of the higher income tax exactly, bracket. Exactly, yes, exactly. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, this is not really being discussed for a long time. So I think we're a long way from discussing income splitting, to be perfectly mm. honest. But um, as I say, I, I think my my analysis of it is that what we need is a, is a mixed approach. So we, we need... Um, to tackle the discrimination which exists in the taxation system at the moment, uh, which means that, for example, you can perfectly easily have a couple with no children at all and no extra responsibilities earning the same amount as a family with children, um, but they could be paying less tax and that doesn't seem to be making much sense at all. You know, it doesn't take into account the extra responsibilities the couple raising children with all the additional expenses have. Mm. Um, And that's because the couple without children are benefiting from two non-taxable personal allowances. So they're paying tax on less of their joint income. you know, it just doesn't seem to make any sense. So um, you could have um, an allowance per child, for example. Mm-hmm. So um, a tax allowance per child. Um, do that, some that countries would, do that? I believe. Yeah. I believe France might might mm-hmm. um, might do that. Actually, mm-hmm. um, that's something. I'm sure I've heard of it. I think. Mm-hmm. I think even America has some sort of family responsibility element in mm-hmm. taxation. Mm-hmm. So it's easily done, or it can be done. Yeah. But the, I think one of the issues with policies, and I think we might have touched on this before, is that it's seen that these days to have a parent at home, you need to be prepared to 
you need to generally have someone who's earning enough to pay for both of you and mm. they're immediately seen as higher income and there's no allowances made for them and it's the people who are there's absolutely no way they can have one person at home who are both earning but then they're seen as somehow more uh, worthy of assistance because they are on a lower income but actually they might be on the higher income than the family with one person earning because they're paying less tax and they yeah. might even have be- they have child benefits mm. they have all sorts of things yeah. given yeah. to them that's right so basically you can have two employees in the same office it doesn't matter whether they're male or female let's just say for argument's sake you have two female employees in an office one with children and one without I know and it's pers- perfectly possible of that um that the person who doesn't have any children, you know, will will see their income going a lot further because it doesn't have to um, feed or house or clothe anybody else. Uh, but they're paying the same tax mm. as 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 their colleague, male or female, who maybe has a you know four children to support. Mm. Um, there is no mechanism in the system for recognizing the additional responsibilities that come with being a parent, whether whether you're a working mother or a working father. Mm. Um, and that that seems very bizarre when at the same time we're quite concerned about child poverty and financials, you know, households growing up with financial struggles trying to meet the rent or the, or the mortgage. And yet, you know, we demand the same amount of tax from somebody with a family to support as we do from a single person on the same income. Mm. And um, yeah, you have said to me before about the two child limits mm. on so just child benefit or on all benefits so the, uh, that accentuate poverty of people with maybe more children to support. Yeah, so this came in really after the 6th of April 2017. So uh, lots of people are now affected by the two child limit um, policy. So you can't claim for more than two children. Um, child benefit, you can't claim. A tax, ta- no, this is tax credit. Oh. Yeah. Oh, tax. Well. Okay. Um, so, in other words, if you've got a third child that was mm. born after the sixth of April, um, two thousand and seventeen, I think it was, um, you'll get, you won't get the child element of it for that mm. ch- uh, for that third child. Um, so, the Child Poverty Action Group mm. actually have campaigned quite a lot on this. Um, mm. And in fact, the Child Poverty Action Group, CPAG, have also campaigned to have the child benefit changes um, um, looked at because... I think some people, because it's called the Child Poverty Action Group, you know, they might be quite surprised that the Child Poverty Action Group is quite keen to reverse the child benefit um, cuts that were made for families that were on £50,000. Because at the time, they called those very wealthy families who didn't deserve the child benefit. Um, But the Child Benefit Action, um, sorry, the Child Poverty Action Group recognised, you know, the difficulties that this entailed for a lot of families. So, yeah, we need to look at taxation. We need to look at the two-child limit. We need to look at um, reversing the child benefit cut, Mm. which disproportionately affected some families, um, particularly families with a single income. But if I could stress that the child benefit cuts didn't just impact on uh, households where one person earned over 50,000. It also impacted on those couples where maybe the mother, say, f- was w- working part-time, maybe earning four or five thousand pounds a year in a very part-time job to try and keep her hand in. Um, 
And then a partner who's maybe been working for 20 years, you know, finally climbed up the greasy ladder, sort of greasy mm. pole. And, um, you know, they finally just crept over that 50,000 threshold. Um, it affected them too, because I think it's been misunderstood that that was just affecting single earner families. The child benefit changes actually affected dual income families too. Um, you know, so that needs to be explained. Mm. Um, and does the two-child um, policy apply to universal benefit as well? The universal benefit, what's it called? Universal credit? Yeah, universal credit, again, it all sort of... The tax credit system mm -hmm. obviously became the universal credit mm -hmm. system and was, was rolled out and has been very controversial for all sorts of reasons. One of the things has been uh, cond conditionality, a work conditionality and the age at which that's set at. So, what is work conditionality? Um, so you've basically got to attend a work-focused um, interview. I think if uh, you have a child over one and under five, um, if you're a lone parent or if you're in a couple, and then you are subject to what's called a work-related requirement if your child is over a certain age. So I think... Um, once your child reaches five, for example, then you obviously have to attend not only an interview, but start to work more and more as the child grows older. Um, but that doesn't take any consideration of, you know, what kind of job your partner maybe have or whether you're a lone parent. It's particularly hard on lone parents, actually, um, but also hard on those people whose partners are maybe working away, um, you know, not home very often, salespeople, people traveling away with their work, people on shifts um, and so forth. So it might equally be very difficult for you to hold down a job as um, a couple household, depending on the nature of the job that your partner has. I mean, there are so many complexities, but I think these work conditionality factors, which are a very integral part of universal credit, have caused a lot of anxiety and stress for a lot of people, not just getting childcare to attend the interviews, which in itself can be quite tricky, um, but you know, the expectation that you're going to be free um, when your child is at school, when we all know um, that employment is very difficult to find, um, that's not going to require work during the summer holidays, mm -hmm. half term, Christmas and so forth. And that takes us into another new area of policy, which is flexibility and, you know, what your um, employer might require of you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we do certainly need a far more flexible part-time school hours mm. jobs mm. and they're very difficult to come by. And yet under universal credit, you know, you've got to prove that you're seeking work and that you're working part-time. Mm. When your child reaches three, if you want to have um, what's commonly known as free childcare or funded childcare, it's not actually free at all, but that's another aspect we can maybe discuss, But um, because the funding isn't adequate to cover the cost to the settings. Um, but if you do want to avail yourself of childcare, you have to be earning the equivalent of 16 hours a week on minimum wage now when your child is three years old. Now, finding work that's 16 hours a week um, 
Do you have to pay? Do you have to pay if you're not working sixteen hours a week? It's still free, isn't it? Well, if if you're a higher earner, then mm. it's actually not based on the number of hours you work. It's actually based on earning the equivalent of sixteen hours on minimum wage. So if your pay is much much higher, if you're an executive, mm. for example. Um, boardroom salaries mm. and so forth you could be well, earning one hour. <laughs> you, well you could be earning that amount in a few hours and yes. you'd be entitled to 30 hours of mm. um, childcare funded by the government oh, so it's free um, for 15 hours still but you get for everyone but you get 30 hours I see the yeah, additional yeah. 15 hours yeah if yes. you meet the eligibility criteria mm-hmm. and if you earn the equivalent mm-hmm. of 16 hours on a minimum wage right and if you're a low if you're a low earner that's going to be you know pretty tricky mm. really mm. um so what what we really need to see is uh, the period between one and three years old looked at a bit more carefully. I think mm. that would be a big policy ask from a lot of parents. So, so, uh, so you... after you've finished your maternity leave and mm. presuming you don't um, have any younger children or older children, mm. you know, and, and you're, you've been working up until your baby is born. And obviously we are quite generous, actually, in our maternity leave and pay provision in this country. Um, mm. But compared to a lot of other countries, but then there's a very difficult period between 12 months old and three years old. And I think Mm. one policy ask possibly would be to have enhanced child benefit during that period. Mm. Um, There are very loud voices asking for universal free childcare from birth. Mm. Um, I'm not sure, as Mm. an early years teacher myself, I'm not sure I would agree with with that. you know, most children are ready for some play and uh, time away from their primary caregivers and so forth at two and a half, three years old. But from birth, I mm. have grave concerns yes. about that, really. Well, well, that's been one of the problems with the policies and trying to bring people out of poverty has been to just get the mothers out to work. But we know that for under threes in particular, their life chances in government speak are going to be better if they've had a lot of one-to-one attention yeah. under three. Yeah. So it's a real catch-22 yeah. that you're taking the people who are going to need quite a lot of help because their life circumstances might be difficult and then putting them into what's not an ideal situation because they're, they're mothers who might be a single mother having have to be out of work and then because they won't be funded to be at home, even though when the mothers are working, they're not necessarily contributing more in tax than... Oh, they could be. Or contributing anything. no tax at all, actually. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I always yeah. remember interviewing a, a mum and doing a fantastic job, really enjoying motherhood, and she was having to return quite quickly to her job cleaning an office building. Mm-hmm. And um, she just didn't feel she was ready to go back so soon, you know. And you ended up thinking, you know, does our system really believe that this um, parent, this mother in this instance, you know, that her time was going to be better spent and that she'd be con- contributing more productively? Um, in in work mm. than taking care of this you know very young child who was barely one mm. um, it just didn't sit very well with me and it wasn't her choice her choice would have been she was breastfeeding as well and mm. her choice would have been to have stayed at home for a little bit longer yes. so I think you know we need to match any money that's spent or directed towards non-family care I'd like to see that directed equally pound for pound towards the option and the free choice 
to to engage in that care yourself as as a family member, as a mother, or as, as a father. So would would that mean that um, instead of getting your thirty hours of so called free funding, what, do you know what the figure is per child on that? I, I knew it at some point. Say it's six thousand pounds per child or three thousand pounds per child. You, the, the I think gov- it's barely more than four pounds an hour or something oh, at the okay. moment. So I mean, it's just not meeting the costs. You know, the realistic no. costs to the setting of providing this when they're paying for the, you know their rates, their training. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the other costs associated with quite intensive one-to-one work with lots of young children, um, mm. especially children with special needs. I mean, the, the mm. rate just isn't anywhere near what it costs settings to provide the service. I think there's an analogy with elder care probably mm. here as well. Um, so would you, would you say taking that money and just giving it to the child as such that you say, if you say the parent, you worry that, you know, the parents might need to pay a bill with it or something, but, but to the child. And so the parent then decides whether to use that money to put the child into a paid setting or to sacrifice their own income to pay, look after the child themselves. Mm. Is that what you talk about, direct payments? Yeah. yeah, and I think the language, the language is difficult, isn't it? I mean, do we mm. call it care allowances? Do we call it enhanced child benefits? I think um, Frank Field talked about enhanced child benefit, or I think he he called it front-loading child benefit, actually, Mm -hmm. uh, for the first few years. Um, But I think the concern there is that too many people assume that the extra costs are only in the first few years. And Mm -hmm. I think any parent of older children will understand (laughs) that actually, you know, the child benefit comes in very useful when the children are teenagers. um, Mm -hmm. And so we wouldn't want a situation where all the child benefit was front loaded in the first few years Mm -hmm. and all the money was spent and then there's nothing to help people further down the line. And, and again, some people might argue that parents of older children don't need child benefit because they will have returned to work. But, you know, I don't think a 10-year-old child is um, ideally left during the summer holidays alone with no supervision. Mm. You know, let's be realistic here. Mm. We do need people to to have time to look after their teenagers mm. and particularly when we have escalating mental health, mm. you know, um, concerns about self-harm and so forth. If if anything, we need family members to be more available for our young people um, mm. than ever before, and particularly with concerns about the way social media, um, mm. you know, presents a few problems as well. You know, too much time on social media and and, and other concerns about the way children spend spend it. I mean, you know, it's very hard to. People listening to this podcast might think, oh, well, parents, they spend more time on social media than the children do. And just because they get to spend more time with their children, if we supported them to do so, that doesn't mean that parents will spend that time wisely. But I, I think very few people want to see an 8, 9, 10, 11 year old spending all, all day alone mm-hmm. with no um, you know, adult supervision or opportunities for days out and conversation and so forth a a lot of that is um i think it's down to i don't know if opportunity cost is the right word that if the parents can't be around for whatever reason and do you think well teenagers i can just leave them given a choice a teenager will just be on social media so it's it's a um uh it's a sort of result rather than a causation and i know my daughter was saying in the summer that a lot of her friends were just saying they were bored because maybe the parents think well you know they're 13 I'll go out to work and carry on. Mm-hmm. And my daughter would just spend time on social media. Uh, but if I say, right, let's do something, mm-hmm. then she'll turn it off. I have to offer yeah. her something better than that. But if you're at work all day and, you know, you have to cook the dinner and sort the washing and pay the bills, then you just don't have the, the time and the availability no. No. to 
give your children a better option than being on social media. Yeah. So I think some of the social media and anxiety is 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 a complicated thing, but it's partly because that that's the only option they feel is available to them because they're not going to sit down and do a puzzle. Mm. And and we still have to intervene if ever, you know, as teenagers as well to make sure that we give them time to yeah, do something alternative. Yeah. I mean, I think we were talking about child benefit. I mean, child benefit mm. is, is for everybody, whether you're in whether you're in work or, or whether you're spending, you know, some time at home caring for, for your family. So child benefit should be universal um, and it should mm. recognise just the extra responsibilities over a lifetime of raising children anyway. So it doesn't really tie in with the work versus mm. uh, looking after your children at home argument. It's more about recognising that, you know, being a parent is a lifelong commitment. Mm. It involves a considerable extra f- expense and and therefore let's support our parents to to be able to build you know strong mm. um relationships um and also to see to their growing needs you know shoes clothing um music lessons some might say or, or whatever you know things that help them to thrive and develop you know all these things cost money and if we are making it so difficult for parents through a punitive taxation system that doesn't take into account um, the fact that you're raising a family if we're, if we're withdrawing welfare support if we're you know introducing a two-child limit in, in a climate where we have you know, high rents and so many people on low pay then is it any wonder that so many people are struggling because somehow we no longer seem to think it's fashionable to support parents to, to, to be able to meet their children's needs. And we're not recognising that meeting those needs necessarily means diverting time to them. And if you're diverting time to them, it means that you are not going to have as much time for paid work. Some part-time work, yes, maybe self-employment, yes. Hopefully periods of time when you're back in full-time work, maybe, who knows? It sort of really depends on a host of things like the nature of your profession, your previous career, your aspirations for the future, your partner's work. It's a very complicated thing. Mm. But, you know, it is time, surely, for us to put some better policies in place, a mix of policies. I can't stress, really, a mix of policies, taxation, direct payments, um, child benefit enhancement, particularly from 12 months to three years old. Um, uh, there's probably some other things we've missed out. Well, I mean, there are, some people will yeah. talk about universal basic income, mm. um, for example, which is... Uh, What's I mean, that I'm, then? So this would obviously help people to have a guaranteed income. So we'd all be entitled um, at any age of life to a basic income. Um, some I'm not an expert in it, but I think, you know, there there is... Some analysis out there that says it would be cheaper than a welfare system. It means you've got a safety net. It means that if you are working, at least you've got that minimum basic income that you can rely on for your basic needs. Um, And then any income you earn on top of that will enable you to improve your life and have Mm -hmm. a better standard of living. Um, provide for your own future needs and, and, and that of your children, but it provides you with a with a, with a safety net. Um, and certainly, you know, I, I think we all should be looking at at, at these debates a little mm. bit more carefully because the system we have at the moment just seems to be failing so many people. Mm. Um, you know, people who are working hard and doing their best by their children, but you know, as we said previously, work doesn't seem to be a route out of poverty or financial mm. struggle. Um, and so, you know, the, the system we've got at the moment with escalating mental health and increasing loneliness and so many people struggling just doesn't seem mm. to be 
fit for purpose. So, do, do you see a link between the um, issues in teenage mental health and mm. the policies, the the, imp- the the way people are having to live when their children are young? I think I think it's so so complicated, and there's so so many different factors involved. Really, I think that maybe if young people are looking at the way the adult population are leading their lives. Maybe it's not really very good role modelling. Um, you know, a lot of disconnection, a lot of road rage, a lot of people feeling very stressed and, um, you know, on edge. Because it's not just teenage mental health. I, I think it's also adults. You know, there are lots of concerns about adult mental health rates. So clearly we are living quite um, stressful lives. Mm. Um and particularly stressful if we have lots of responsibilities, if we've got lots of care responsibilities, and nobody seems to nobody seems to be recognising our endeavours and you know our dedication to our loved ones. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm actually on a Facebook group at the moment, which is a closed Facebook group for people whose lives are pretty much um, dedicated to caring for other people whether they've got dementia or mm. um another reason why they need to have full-time care and you know these are really really moving stories mm. it's sort of an invisible army of of people mainly women out there saving the state billions of pounds really because they're um not entitled to very much, not entitled to respite care quite mm. often, um, you know, doing things behind closed doors. So for all the talk of equality, I'm, I'm not sure that it's mm. affecting a lot of ordinary people's lives, really. And, mm. You know, I, I know there have been surveys in the past asking people whether they relate to the term feminist or, you know, whether they're engaged with debates around equality, and and a lot of people are not. And maybe that's just because they're getting on with their lives and, you know, they have so many, um, they've got so many priorities to meet day by day. You know, you're putting food on the table and looking after people that they just haven't got time to engage with these, Mm -hmm. with these debates. And also because the debates, at least as covered by the media, um, seem to be all about BBC pay, you know, (laughs) you know, why is uh, so-and-so on 250,000 and and so-and-so's on Mm 350,000. So... I, I yeah. think ordinary folk can't really relate to that, you know, and nobody's really talking about, you know, why is a nursing home um, assistant or, or somebody who works 14 hours a day providing home care help to people trying to cope in their own homes, mm. you know, they're all on minimum wage. Why isn't anybody talking about about that? Mm. Um, so pe- people are pretty disengaged from these policies, aren't they? They're just trying their best to get on with their lives. Yes. And... There's lots of academic work behind the scenes looking into social care systems and, you know, the, the how can we improve things debate, but it doesn't seem to change anything on the ground. Mm. Um, I think until people are, uh, the carers are paid a market wage as such, it's always seen uh, people first of all link the, your value with how much you're paid sometimes. So if you're not paid very much, it's assumed that your job isn't very valuable, whereas often it's the yeah. the opposite. I mean, there's a, there's a mm. lot of, uh, I come from a corporate background, you know, there's a lot of value in people who work really hard in a business 
who are keeping everyone else's jobs going. Like you see the failure of Thomas Cook has just mm, failed. Mm. And that's some corporate managers who have not done their job very well. They've been paid They've very been large paid a lot of money. But equally, you could say money. you could have someone else come in and be paid a lot of money, but they kept business going. And there's value in that, definitely. There's a lot of value, value in wealth generation, wealth creation. But then there needs to be value given to caring roles that don't generate income, but they may be... Uh, displace costs so you're saving you have to look at how much you're saving if I mm. look after my own parents at home mm. I'm saving the state a lot of money but I'm mm. not going to be paid if they paid us the amount that they it would cost them to put them in a nursing home mm. then overall everyone would be better off because then I'm not feeling stressed because my parents are in a nursing home and I'm having to work the whole time and I don't have time to go and mm. see them or anything like that so the, there needs to be a, a recognition of the value or a nursery worker paying them more but you wouldn't need to you could pay them more if fewer of them were needed because there were parents being rewarded at home for caring for their children at home you wouldn't need all the under threes going off into so-called funded childcare. yes particularly because you need better ratios of course for the younger children so that's necessarily going to be quite costly Mm. to provide and I, I mean it's quite interesting that we've we've never really valued what a mother did when she was looking after a 10-month-old baby. Mm. So it's perhaps no surprise that we're not going to value the nursery worker who looks after three babies, you mm. know. And it never ceases to amaze me, actually, that, you know, we think that a mother who ha- um, who has twins or a father looking after triplets, you know, we all ask ourselves, how do they manage? <laughs> and I think, you know, we, we sort of tend to run around all the local charities Home Start or Friends of the Family, you know, all these local charities to help those parents out because it's recognised they need extra support. And yet somehow we feel that it's okay for people to look after two or three babies all day long, you know, in a group situation. And it's clearly not going to be possible to do that day in, day out. And and I feel to provide what that child needs, which Mm. is more or less one-to-one attention. Mm. And I mean, those of us who've had children will know, you know, and those of us who've looked after other children, as I have as a childminder uh, at one stage in my career, you know, children are very different. Some children are very intense. They do need a lot more care and attention and other children mm-hmm. maybe are less um, demanding of time. Actually, I mean, you know, there's a whole range of different personalities and so mm-hmm. forth. And um but if you've got a crash situation with, say, eight to ten babies in there, you need you need really good ratios and you need very well qualified. Or perhaps I shouldn't say well qualified, but actually very experienced mm-hmm. and uh, empathetic and well trained people who really love their job, who are really suited to it, who understand about child development. And that's going to cost you money, mm-hmm. you know, but um, we're just not valuing this mm-hmm. at all. And of course, children don't speak, do they? <laughs> yeah. yes. So, you know, children don't have a voice, and especially they don't have, uh, they can't exercise their voice until they're a lot older. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they have no say in any of this, really. Well, any so, any of the debates on the radio are, or any debates are always about the needs of the mother, the rights of the mother. And if as soon as you start saying, well, what about the need of the child to be looked after by the mother? Then they say, well, it's just that's not going to happen, is it? Because they can't afford it. So we're going to ignore that. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than saying, if you don't meet that need early on, the need is always going to be there and it's going to come out some way. 
But what you were saying there about the children having, you know, being different, I think to be able to fund a flexible approach to childcare. So, uh, you know, some some people I talk to, they say, well, my child was quite difficult, so I took time off work to look after them. And if you can't do that, then that child is, is going to have unmet needs. Mm-hmm. And some children might be very laid back. And I, I don't think there's any child who's going to prefer anyone to their mother. No. I, I, th- <laughs> I think it's cope. difficult, you know, we have to be so careful because, of course, the child who's quite um, laid back, maybe quite quiet in a corner, quite often gets ignored. Mm. Um, that's another problem, actually, that can, you know, be very, it, there's a very simplified way of looking at it. You know, they'll be called an easy child, an easy baby. So they mm. just get left there. They don't get the, the attention that they need because they're not demanding it. But in actual fact, if they were at home with a loving, sensitive parent, um, usually the mother, particularly in the first few months, then they would be given that attention. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we have to be very wary how we mm. describe these different personalities, whether they're easy or difficult or demanding or whatever. I mean, each child is unique. Mm. Um, what makes each child special to to their mum or their dad is that this is your child. Mm. You know, you want the best for your child. You want to sing with your child. You want to cuddle your child. You want to spend time with your very precious baby that you've mm. nurtured, you know, through pregnancy, given birth. And, and you really want to, you have an, a vested interest in the long-term development mm. of your child that nobody else w- w- can match, really. Um, mm. Nobody else can Nursery workers, uh, pra- practitioners, teachers, whatever we call people um, who work in the profession, and I have met some fantastic, committed, wonderful people of all ages, of varying sort of backgrounds in terms of qualifications and so forth, who are absolutely committed to their work. Um, and deserve a better deal but it worries me that we've lost balance Um, we're moving towards longer hours at an ever earlier age Mm. so where's the balance in this debate you know this is not about anti-child care this is about providing a little bit of child care for people when they need it but also matching that with equal support if you decide to give up work to be at home to care for them. So let's match that pound for pound. Let's not squeeze people into boxes or, mm. you know, make people um, do something that they don't feel comfortable with sooner than they want to do it, for longer hours than they want to do it, just to meet some sort of, you know, mm. um, target set by the UN or Lisbon Convention or mm. or, or whatever. Um, because um, you know, balance is the key and flexibility and, and choice and then people will mm. you know, be, be able to do what feels right for them in their unique circumstances um, Well lo- looming in the background and I think this will be our last policy comment but it's the biggest one and I will talk about it another time is housing mm. The cost of housing, that that uh, really is a big driver for people not having the choice to stay at home if they want to, to care for their children, because mm-hmm. they literally can't afford it. Or even with rents, you know, that so much is in I think rent can be now. more expensive, actually, mm. than a mortgage. That's mm. it. So mm. there's people are left with absolutely no choice if they're no, going to put no. a roof over their heads. No. Uh, what policy do you so think So we have an absolutely tragic situation of so many children in temporary housing, for mm. so many families being housed in in temporary facilities. I, I think I read the other day 
families uh, in London. I can't remember the name of the complex, but where they were basically in one room and they'd been there for um, several months, even several years, and it was meant to be temporary. So you know, this is the sort of um, experience of large numbers of or growing numbers of children, and it's very worrying. Mm-hmm. So um, I always remember going to a policy meeting and we had one table about child development and another table about taxation and another table about welfare and so forth. And there was one table about housing and people had to sign up for the policy group they wanted to um, participate in. And nobody went to the housing uh, table, Mm. you know. Um, And whoever led that table stood up and said, shame on you, Mm. because nobody here at today's meeting seems to be motivated to talk about housing. And yet, you know, we all know how important our homes are. You know, this is where we rest. This is where we eat. Mm. This is where relationships play out. Hopefully we've got some garden space. You know, this is where we spend our time. And this is um, something that's being denied to more and more people. And if they have it, they're worried about it. They're worried about the next month's rent. They're worried about losing their homes. They're worried about being relocated. Um, I've just been supporting a family whose children got relocated um, very suddenly with children just about to do their GCSEs and A-levels and so forth. So we mounted a a campaign with a headmaster to try and get them to be allowed to stay for just a few months longer so that they could do their GCSEs. That didn't work and they were forcibly rehoused anyway for no apparent good reason. So uh, it's, it's all very, very worrying. I think it's difficult also, you know, to uh, talk about why this happened because it seems to be just maths that, you know, if you look at the maths, surely it's obvious that the minute you had two people working full time in any home, then, you know, the mortgage lenders would suck up that extra income. And of course, that helped um, mm. housing prices to, to go up and up and up and up. Well, really. that's the help to buy, isn't um, it? And that, and that as well, yes. That's had, a, you know, no effect because, yeah. the, you know, as soon as someone says, your person buying this house is going to be given £10,000 to buy it. You yeah. say, that's great, it's so £10,000 more. I think people used help to buy on properties worth about 600000 didn't mm. they, and, that and so forth. So, sure. well, I mean, my own... Um, my own policy priority would be to build more social housing, um, social housing with space, decent space for people to live their family lives and some garden space for the children. Um, and I know that means a lot of investment, but I think it has to be done. The whole policy thrust has been towards getting people to spend more <laughs> by yeah. by getting getting giving them money that they have to spend on things like housing or childcare or, or anything like that, rather than supporting people people in caring roles um, so everyone's just spending everyone's paying yeah, everyone else to spend yeah because to buy it's, all, it's all about this endless growth isn't it this yes. um, target of um, endless growth and um higher mm. GDP figures. Mm. So, but this is being questioned more and more by leading economists and you know people are beginning to look at whether GDP is really the best measure of progress and, you know, people talking about happiness and so forth and well-being mm. and, you know, what should we really be looking at? Mm. Um, all, all that seems very clear to most people is that, you know, we, we have greater health problems, mental health issues. You know, people can work and work and be very, very diligent in their work. It's not going to help them to escape financial struggle. Mm. Um People want to have children, but they can't afford to have them. 
And, and if they do have them, they quite often struggle financially and also with the time that they need to care for those children. So, you know, the current model just isn't working. Mm. So some really major things need to change mm. all at the same time. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking where the money would come from. I think if you weren't having to spend so much on elderly care because people were supported to live in a house that wasn't costing them too much where they could if they chose to care for their elderly relatives if you if you had you didn't have to spend so much on mental health because people either weren't working ridiculous hours and being stressed by lack of money or had been able to be cared for in a warm home environment so they didn't have teenage mental health issues uh then then you could if you put money in at the supply side then you're not having to pay to make up the pieces yeah. and they're even yeah. saying obesity yeah, can but be linked this, to childhood this, stress this is very frightening really isn't it because the yeah. truth of the matter is is that there's money to be generated actually from ill health <laughs> so it actually you know if yeah. you're talking about the pharmaceutical companies and so forth there's a lot of gdp actually to be made mm. by actually you know uh, having quite an unhealthy population and, and you know this is quite a difficult area to to get say, into but i wouldn't say Suggest the policies are formed with the, with the idea of causing mental health problems, so that therefore our pharmaceutical so we have so, so then we have to fix it by spending even more money. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, people, people yeah. are talking about this. It's a vicious cycle. If yeah. we had uh, simpler, more straightforward lives, mm. um, then then maybe things wouldn't wouldn't mm. be so complex. But and then you you have people who say, oh, you know, people are so uh, they they want so much these days. They they want want the holidays they they want the latest gadgets they want the newest fridge they want a new carpet even though they had one last year and you know I, I'm not sure about this really I, I suppose you know we're what surrounded by messages aren't we mm. to to spend 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 you know they want and and actually just to say that this leads me on to you know the way the banks they, they, they try to encourage young people into debt I mean um, they send them you know, loan offers and so forth when they're barely 18, mm. when they don't really have any um, understanding mm. of, of finances just yet. And they, they should probably cover a lot more of that in schools. Mm. But I think it's quite frightening that although they're meant to have reined in the banking sector, mm. when I see the amount of letters that, that, that go to young people, mm. enticing them into credit cards and, you mm. know, s spending patterns... Um, it's 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 very worrying. So mm -hmm. is, is it really that people want more or is it that they're being persuaded that they need more and that they must spend because, you know, the local company down the road will fail unless you keep on buying the stuff? You know, mm -hmm. more and more young people are buying stuff in charity shops. That's great. Mm -hmm. You know, they're into sustainable, sustainable living. At, at, at least a lot of young people I know are really moving away from buying new stuff they're mm. recycling they're much more mindful of the environment uh, young people are much more savvy about these things than than mm. we ever were when we were younger it's talked about a lot more um but what's that going to do to gdp you know what, what are the banks going to think about that and mm. um, you know are young people going to want more time for for caring i, I think they are mm. they're not satisfied with the way things have gone over the last 50 years no they want change mm. And I think now our politicians have to to really be a lot more imaginative and, and think of some different solutions for a more sustainable future, really, mm -hmm. and more time for caring. I think uh, one, I think 
exactly. That's it. It's time for caring. Mm. And I think if people are, I don't know, thinking about elections and electioneering and you have someone pop up mm. on your doorstep, I think a really simple question would be, uh, what policies would you bring in that give us time for caring Yes. and time for relationships? Yes. I think that you can, you can have policies that will create time by reducing the need to work every single hour that God sends yeah. because you are rewarded for the time you spent caring mm. and valued for it. Mm. And we need to change the language around this, don't we? And it's not just about policies, it's about attitudes, mm. it's about the, the way we frame these arguments, the way we talk about it. As I said earlier, um, you know, half an hour ago I talked about this word burden. I mean, if we mm. keep on talking in such negative language about, mm. about what it means to care, mm. um, and if we don't think the people who are caring are being productive, and if we're questioning their contribution, I mean, are we really con- are we really saying that people who volunteer in the community, people who work on wards visiting the elderly, you know, people who work with teenagers who need support with their independence and so forth, are we really saying that they're not contributing? Mm-hmm. And I think we've surely moved on. We surely understand that this is contributing. Well, I think also it's a basic human need that you need to feel significant and you need to feel that you are you are contributing and you are giving something to society but it's maybe we could talk about the privilege of caring you Mm. know I have when you're a a mother you really feel privileged you have these children and they're entirely dependent on you and you have the privilege of caring for them and then a policy comes along and says well that's really not worth anything and I'd like you to have the privilege of working Mm. (laughs) instead but you know the privilege I feel very privileged to to have my children who I can care for particularly when people can't have children or something's gone wrong and to to see it in those terms that you have a significance because of your yeah. impact on other people yeah and that is way beyond the significance yeah. of your impact on the world of work say yes. although yes. work is important as i said it's really important to work responsibly to generate income to keep the world going yeah. i mean it's about balance but i mean and when we yeah. have these debates claire about mm. policies mm. you know we are not saying that everybody needs to be at home caring all mm. the time what we're, what we're seeking is policies that will support an individual when they're working in paid work and will equally support you when you're engaged in care work because you still need to feed yourself, clothe yourself and your family and house yourself. Mm. So, you know, this isn't about one person on one side of the table who's in paid work and somebody else who's um, in invisible care work. You know, the... I say this quite a lot, actually, this can quite often be the same person, Mm. the same person at different stages of their lives. You know, this can be me when I work for five, ten years when I'm in my 20s, and then me when I'm caring for a few years and I equally want some support, and then Mm. me when I go back to work paid work and then me when I'm caring again unexpectedly because somebody I love has had an accident or has fallen ill then me when I return we live long lives Mm. and our lives have various stages so we should be able to dip in and out of different um, ways of contributing Mm. through care work invisible work and Mm. and unpaid work without feeling that Mm. um you know, that we're going to, to, to lose support somehow. Well, also, it's perhaps most significantly you when and me when we need to be cared for. Ourselves. We want the policies in place that, that mm. uh, our children and loved ones can care for us when we need it uh, so that uh, we can we can care for others when we're able to and mm. others can care for us. I think it's... Um... 
too narrow a debate at the moment. So it's missing something really vital about you know the human psyche and and, and what we need to be happy. And, mm. and, well, I think we'll okay. <laughs> that's, that's for another time. We yeah. do need to be happy and uh, uh, and feel that we're making a difference. Yes, yes. I think that's the, the, that's the point. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, thank you. Thank okay. you, Marie. That's really good. Thank, thank you. you. Well, thank you to Marie for that really informed and I think wise and wide ranging discussion of what a family friendly policy would really look like and the ways in which we need to help families to care for their families uh, the way they want to. Uh, we were talking about the UN Sustainable Development Goals and the one we were referring to was number five, which is gender equality, which is looking at reducing the gap between men and women in the labour market. Uh, that's really important in a lot of the developing world that women aren't kept out of the labour market artificially. But in the UK, it is used as a, a goal to drive more and more women into work because there are artificial measurements of how much women earn over their lifetime compared to men, which absolutely ignores the time that women may take out to care for family members. And also the aim to get all women into work, even if they're mothers and actually really want to be caring for their children at home because they feel that that's what's best for their children. So it is used as a false goal in the UK, this uh, gender equality. And it doesn't recognise the value of care, which we were talking about before. Another uh, issue I just wanted to touch on was something that I saw in the Sunday Times. It was a quote from the broadcaster Kay Burley saying that no working mum should beat herself up, which sounds very innocuous on the face of it. Of course, you know, women are forced into situations that they might not want to be in. That There are mothers who are having to work who don't want to. There are mothers who um, want to um, go out to work part-time and can't find jobs that fit in with looking after their children. So there are a lot of mothers in situations that they haven't chosen and there's no reason for a mother who's having to work to give herself a hard time. But the quote is apparently that mothers who have jobs shouldn't feel guilty or compare themselves against, and I quote, the perfectly manicured mum at the school gates. Now, that's what's really annoyed me, the idea of perfectly manicured mums. So the implication immediately there is if you're not working, the reason is not so that you can give your time fully to caring for your children. It's so that you can go to your nail bars, get your hair done, make yourself look perfect, because that's all that matters. So uh, what she's doing there is comparing uh, paid work, the world of paid work, with basically a life of indolence and laziness where all you're doing is looking after yourself and not caring for your children. I think it's really unhelpful to bring that sort of comment into the debate. As I said, that there are there are mothers in situations they don't want to be in and there are children who would love to have a mother caring for them full time but are unable to because of family situations. And again, this is where family-friendly policies come in to enable um, children to be cared for in the best possible situation for them. One more thing in the papers 
is something from the Marriage Foundation talking about one earner families and saying that in one earner families, 90% of the time, it's still the father who stays at home, um, the father who works and the mother who stays at home. And uh, to me, that suggests that that is actually how most people want to be living their family lives, that mothers do want to be the ones who are caring for their children full time. And that having assessed the family situation, it's recognised that particularly for young children, you know, especially for the under threes and under fours, mothers are very well placed to look after their children from biological point of view, if nothing else. And that actually in a lot of families, the fathers are, are happy to be the ones who are out at work and uh, the mothers are happy to be the ones caring for their children. And all the policies that you put into place, giving free childcare and in uh, reducing universal credit so that mothers are no longer to be at, able to be at home full time, um, really are going in the face of what families prefer. And a lot of families prefer the situation where it's the mother caring for the children at home full time. So quite a lot going on in the press and lots to talk about in family-friendly policies. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I'm Claire Pay. You can find me on um, Instagram and Facebook, where I'm Mothers Matter Podcast. And on Twitter, I'm at Podcast Mothers. I don't really post very much. It's not going to cause you too much trouble to follow me. I only really post when the next um, uh, episode is coming up. I'm also uh, welcome. You're welcome to email me on mothersmatter at outlook.com. I'm always really happy to hear from people, particularly with any suggestions about um, how I could do things differently, new um, podcast topics, or if you have something you would like to talk to me about. I'm best able to talk to people in the south east of England because I'm based in Hampshire and I prefer to talk to people face to face uh, but um, I'd love to hear from anyone and if you're one of the couple of people I'm still due to meet up with to do a podcast I'm sorry about that but I am really interested to hear from anyone with any sort of feedback at all thank you very much for listening bye thank you for listening to this podcast from Mothers Matter Thank you to James Ede from Be Heard, who has done the audio production. And thank you to Mothers at Home Matter for all their support. If you have any positive comments, anything nice to say, please write to mothersmatter at outlook.com. If you feel it's really necessary, please send any constructive feedback to the same address, mothersmatter at outlook.com. And please do subscribe. I really, really would love it if you would subscribe. I'm hoping to do a number of very interesting interviews and to give a voice to mothers everywhere. My name is Claire Pay, and you've been listening to the Mothers Matter podcast. Thank you.